Hello, my name is Roger O'Keefe, and in this lecture, I will be talking about the definition of an international crime. Well, why do we worry about the definition of an international crime? Why is it a question? Well, the simple answer is because there doesn't seem to be an agreed definition of an international crime, or insofar as any definition is ever posited, it's not the case that everyone necessarily understands it or has internalised it. So, for example, we often hear international crimes referred to as violations of international human rights law and vice versa. We hear, for example, the crime of uh, aircraft sabotage referred to by some as an international crime and by others simply as what is called a suppression crime. So it seems uh, that there is some confusion or at least a lack of agreement about as to what we mean by an international crime. And it's precisely this question which we will look at today and I am going to suggest to you what I and a few other people think is the better or preferable definition of an international crime. Before we start, I should make it clear that I will be using the terms national law, municipal law, domestic law as synonymous. In other words, they all mean the law applied at the national level. So, with that terminological clarification in mind, let's look at the broader terminological question addressed by this lecture. What is an international crime? Well, there's two parts, obviously, to that expression. One is the crime part, and one is the international part. Let's look first at the crime part. Well, the term crime, synonymously offence, formally denotes a legal rule, the violation of which results in a penalty on the part of the author, usually, but not necessarily, by way of imprisonment, fine, forfeiture, or a combination of the three. Now, the term is also used in a second, slightly different and less formal sense to refer to the conduct which violates the rule in question, that is, the act of murder, the act of robbery and so on. And in this second way, we say, as a matter of natural usage, that people commit the crime of murder, the crime of robbery, and so on. It is, however, the formal meaning of crime on which I shall be focusing, the idea of a legal rule, the violation of which results in a penalty. Now, a crime amounts in substance to a legal obligation, punishable in the event of breach, in respect of given conduct, whether the obligation be negative, what we would call a prohibition, or, in the case of crimes of omission, positive, that is, a duty to perform the relevant conduct. In practice, however, crimes are rarely phrased as prohibitions or duties. Instead, formulations commonly found in municipal legislation include conduct constitutes an offence or conduct is punishable by penalty and so on. Although the second of these formulations, with reference to the penalty, is not found in international criminal law. Crimes are to be distinguished from delicts, or what those of us from a common law background would call torts, the commission of which gives rise to a secondary obligation on the part of the author to make reparation to any injured party, most frequently in the form of payment of compensation.
Well, the first major point really to be made here is that positive international law recognises the criminal responsibility only of individuals and not also, or in the alternative, of states. In this light, the term international crime is, for now at least, restricted to prohibitions and positive obligations, the violation of which gives rise to the criminal responsibility of individuals. It is this provision for individual criminal responsibility which distinguishes international criminal law from international human rights law and from the main body of international humanitarian law, also referred to as the laws of armed conflict, both of which deal only in state responsibility. This, I guess you could say, is the second significant point to be made. International criminal law deals in individual criminal responsibility. International human rights law and international humanitarian law, properly so called, deal only in state responsibility. Now, obviously, there is some subject matter similarity between these fields, so as between international criminal law and international human rights law, we might say that international crimes in a lay or loose sense violate the victim's human rights and to the extent that international criminal law embodies individual criminal responsibility under international law itself, both international criminal law and international human rights law conceive of the individual as a subject of international law. But the point to be made here is that conduct by an individual not in accordance with a human right guaranteed in treaty or customary international law can give rise, if to anything, only to the delictual responsibility of the state and not to the criminal responsibility of the individual. Now, the same conduct, for example, torture by a state official, might well constitute both an international crime and a violation of an international human rights standard. But the two juridical phenomena are distinct, responsibility for each being different in source and nature. As for international humanitarian law, this intersects with international criminal law insofar as certain breaches of its rules that is, those breaches we call war crimes, implicate the individual criminal responsibility of the perpetrator. But not every violation of international humanitarian law is punishable as a war crime. Many result only in state responsibility. Conversely, not every international crime is a violation of international humanitarian law. By way of aside, it is not infrequently asserted that certain international crimes, such as genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes and torture, enjoy the status of peremptory norms of general international law, or, as they are perhaps better known, norms of jus cogens. But such assertions confuse prohibitions directed towards and binding on individuals with prohibitions directed towards and binding on states. Only the latter are capable of being peremptory norms, since the essence of peremptory norms is that they may not be derogated from. That is, they may not be set aside as inapplicable, either at all 
or for a specified period. And only states have the capacity to derogate from rules of international law. So when it is stated by more reliable authorities that the prohibitions on, for example, genocide and torture are norms of just cogens, what is being referred to is the prohibition on the commission of such acts by a state, the consequences of which would be that state's delictual responsibility. So that's the crimes element of international crime. What about the international element? Well, this is where the concept of an international crime is most disputed. No agreed notion, let alone definition, seems to exist. More to the point, abstract definitions are very rarely offered, and those that are tend to be misleading. Take crimes against humanity, piracy, ure againsium, and torture within the meaning of the Torture Convention by way of more or less random and representative example. It is perfectly well established that crimes against humanity give rise to individual criminal responsibility on the part of the perpetrator under customary international law. In other words, customary international law itself embodies a prohibition on conduct amounting to a crime against humanity as customarily defined. In addition, customary international law permits states to assert universal prescriptive jurisdiction over crimes against humanity, at least according to what I consider to be the empirically more persuasive view. On the other hand, piracy, ure gentium, contrary perhaps to popular misconception, does not give rise to criminal responsibility under international law. That is, customary international law does not itself embody a prohibition on piracy. What it posits, rather, is merely a special jurisdictional rule permitting each state to apply its municipal criminal law on the basis of universality to conduct amounting to piracy as defined by customary international law. In other words, to assert universal prescriptive jurisdiction over the crime of piracy uregensium, that is, piracy within the meaning of international law. In the final analysis, the pirate's criminal responsibility is a function of municipal or national or domestic, whichever you want to call it, law alone. Nor, thirdly, does the crime of torture provided for by the Torture Convention give rise to criminal responsibility under international law, in this case, treaty law. Now, let me say that it's a separate question whether the same crime also exists separately and in parallel as a crime of customary international law. I'm talking here strictly about torture as a so-called treaty crime. As I said, when you read the Torture Convention, the crime of torture provided for does not give rise on the face of the Convention to criminal responsibility under the Convention itself. The Convention merely obliges each state party to, inter alia, ensure that all acts of torture as defined in Article 1 of the Convention, are offences under its national law. And to take such measures as may be necessary to establish its jurisdiction over such acts on a range of specified jurisdictional bases, including universality. In the event, and this is the point, the criminal responsibility of the torturer is 
like the criminal responsibility of the pirate, embodied solely in the municipal law of the various states' parties to the convention. So, three different crimes there manifesting what is essentially two different species, let's say, of crime. One amounting to a prohibition under international law itself, and one ultimately, albeit under the direction of international law and as defined by international law, amounting to a crime in substance only under national law. There is a very respectable body of scholarly opinion which restricts the use of the term international crime to the first type of offence, that is, to those offences giving rise to criminal responsibility under international law itself. But other equally eminent scholars include both categories of offence under the rubric of international crimes, that is, those offences which give rise to criminal responsibility under international law and those which do not, even if it should be added in the latter case they are defined by international law. Well, if we look to the major international instruments and documents, we find that these provide no real guidance on the point. That said, some tentative support for the inclusive approach to the concept of an international crime can be drawn from the commentary to the International Law Commission's 1994 draft statute for an international criminal court. Now, the draft statute, which in addition to the core crimes under customary international law, vested the proposed court with subject matter jurisdiction over a range of crimes created by multilateral convention, included within the court's jurisdiction offences, such as torture pursuant to the Torture Convention, which clearly do not give rise to criminal responsibility under international law. All these offences are referred to in the draft preamble as crimes of international concern. But, and this is the point, the occasional reference in the ILC's commentary to international crimes, as distinct from crimes under customary international law, as also used in the commentary in specific circumstances, seems to imply that the former label, international crimes, encompasses, in the mind of the International Law Commission, both those crimes defined by international law which give rise to criminal responsibility under international law itself and those which do not. This inclusive approach to the term international crime also finds a degree of judicial endorsement. For example, in their joint separate opinion in the arrest warrant case, Judges Higgins, Coymans and Bergenthal speak of, quote, international treaty obligations to make certain international crimes offences also in national law, unquote, before surveying an extensive range of post-Second World War treaty crimes, many of them establishing offences which do not give rise to criminal responsibility under international law. These judges also seem, at least by implication, to include piracy within the concept of an international crime. Similarly, in her dissenting opinion in the same case, Judge Ad Hoc Van den Weinhardt gives the Convention for the Suppression of Unlawful Seizure of Aircraft and the Torture Convention as examples of what she calls international crimes. The former, on the unlawful seizure of aircraft, may or may not provide for criminal responsibility under international law, it's simply unclear. 
while the latter, the torture convention, clearly does not, as I have said. As for the national level, in the Pinochet case, Lords Brown, Wilkinson and Hutton refer to both torture under customary international law and torture as provided for by the Torture Convention as international crimes. Lords Brown, Wilkinson and Phillips also refer to piracy under this rubric. And Lord Phillips recounts how states have, on occasion, agreed by conventions that their national courts should enjoy jurisdiction to prosecute for a particular category of international crime. So, the point I'm trying to make there is that there does seem to be quite impressive, although it has to be said, still relatively slight, authority for the more inclusive use of the term international crimes to include also those crimes defined by international law which do not give rise under international law to individual criminal responsibility. Now, the second major point to be made in this regard is that it is not as though the inclusive usage is unprincipled or devoid of merit, quite the contrary. There are good reasons for suggesting that the inclusive approach makes sense. First, despite formal distinctions, there is no compelling semantic or logical reason why each of the three offences that I examined at the start of this discussion, namely crimes against humanity, piracy uregensium, and torture pursuant to the Torture Convention, should not be termed an international crime. A crime in that each makes express provision one way or another for the criminal responsibility of the perpetrator. International in that each is defined by international law. Moreover, in practical terms, what unites those offences which give rise to criminal responsibility under international law and those which, while defined by international law, merely implicate national criminalisation is arguably as significant as what divides them. For example, the fact that it gives rise to criminal responsibility under customary international law or treaty is not a prerequisite for the prosecution of an offence before an international criminal tribunal. No international criminal tribunal enjoys an inherent jurisdiction ratione materiae. And even less is such jurisdiction limited in principle to international law, that is, to crimes in respect of which international law itself embodies a prohibition or, in the case of culpable omissions, imposes a duty. An international criminal tribunal, like any international tribunal, exercises only the subject matter jurisdiction accorded it by its constituent instrument. And this instrument can vest the tribunal with jurisdiction over whichever offences the states establishing the tribunal or the international organisation establishing the tribunal so wish. The same goes, mutatis mutandis, for the distinct question of the tribunal's applicable law. The states establishing the tribunal, or the international organisation as the case may be, can authorise that tribunal to apply whichever law they choose. Indeed, the tribunal's applicable law may include, or may in the first instance consist of, or even be limited to, its own statute, its own constituent instrument, which will define 
the relevant crimes. In this way, the tribunal's statute may itself effectively be constitutive as a substantive matter of the crimes the tribunal has jurisdiction to try. With no recourse to freestanding customary international law or treaty law being necessary, the statute of the International Criminal Court has been held in the Lubanga case to operate in precisely this way. In short then, whether or not a crime gives rise to criminal responsibility under international law is immaterial to whether it can be tried by an international criminal tribunal. Similarly, in terms of suppression at the national level, there is little to distinguish a crime defined by international law for which there is criminal responsibility under international law from one for which there is not. Constitutional principle requires most states either to enact legislation when providing for crimes, a requirement applicable equally to all types of international crime, or in the absence of specific legislation and where feasible, to prosecute international crimes as existing common crimes such as murder, assault and robbery, a possibility again independent of criminal responsibility under international law. Secondly, and perhaps even more compellingly, what divides as a formal matter those crimes which give rise to criminal responsibility under international law and those crimes defined by international law which merely implicate national criminalisation is, quite frankly, often extraordinarily difficult to discern. With treaty crimes, it's simply unclear in many cases whether the specified crime results or not in criminal responsibility under the treaty. This was acknowledged by the International Law Commission in the commentary to its draft statute for an international criminal court, which explains that the distinction drawn in one report of the Commission's working group between conduct specifically defined as a crime independently of any given system of national law and conduct which a treaty requires to be made criminally punishable, punishable under national law was not retained in the finally adopted draft statute on account of the fact that the distinction, while sound in principle, was thought difficult to draw for some treaties. In the words of Professor Robert Cryer and his collaborators in their book, An Introduction to International Criminal Law and Procedure, the adoption of criminal responsibility under international law as the definitional criterion of an international crime may lead to unhelpful debate as to which offences do and do not give rise to such responsibility. This being the case, it seems unwise in principle and unfeasible in practice to use criminal responsibility under international law as the hallmark of an international crime. In short then, restricting the term international crime to those offences which give rise to criminal responsibility directly under international law arguably swims against the tide of the increasingly predominant usage and there are perfectly sensible reasons to consider as international crimes not only offences of this sort but also those offences defined by international law which give rise to criminal responsibility under municipal law alone. So then, what definition should we use? 
it has to be said that ultimately the approach adopted to the definition of an international crime is as much a matter of taste as of law. It really does not matter which school of thought each individual prefers. Moreover, there is perhaps limited practical value to be had in any abstract definition of an international crime. You know one when you see one, to paraphrase Justice Stewart of the US Supreme Court. The punishable conduct is specified by customary international law or treaty. Some of the offences in question result in criminal responsibility under international law itself. Others are subject to an international obligation of municipal criminalisation. And a few straddle both of these categories. And in nearly all cases, at least on the more convincing view, international law lays down rules either permitting or obliging the assertion by states of prescriptive jurisdiction over the crime on an otherwise exorbitant basis. A descriptive range of potential characteristics such as the foregoing is arguably as useful as the prescription of characteristics common to all. Nonetheless, there is an obvious and compelling practical benefit in any field in the adoption of a standard terminology. And this militates strongly in favour of the positing and reasoned defence of a definition of an international crime. So, it is submitted that an international crime is best defined as a crime defined by international law whether that law be customary or conventional. It is its definition either by customary international law or by treaty that is the sole characteristic shared by every offence with a claim to the mantle of international crime. So let me repeat, in the definition suggested here, an international crime is quite simply a crime defined by international law. Well, two other characteristics are on occasion treated effectively, if not always formally, as constitutive of an international crime. But neither distinguishes an international crime, whether as defined here or indeed by the alternative school of thought, from a municipal crime in every instance. And it's precisely the distinction between international and national crimes or municipal crimes or domestic crimes, which would seem to be the very raison d'etre of a definition of an international crime. If a definition of an international crime can't tell you whether the crime is international or national, it's no good. Well, what's the first of these two definitional misconceptions, as I will refer to them? First, scholars and it has to be said, judges alike, often allude to a special gravity, particular seriousness, as if it were at least one defining characteristic of an international crime. Words like heinous and atrocity are frequently used. Or it is said that such crimes shock the conscience of mankind. But such talk is misleading. While no international crime is a trifling offence, many municipal crimes are just as, if not more, grave. 
It may be a facile observation, but murder is murder, whether it is committed by a soldier against the wounded in the field or by a husband against a wife in the home. And by most reckonings, a purely municipal offence of murder is graver than, for example, the unlawful confinement of a civilian in occupied territory or willfully depriving a prisoner of war of the rights of fair and regular trial, both of them international crimes by any definition. Furthermore, if one wished to introduce scale as an index of gravity, the random gunning down in a shopping mall of five passers-by at the hands of an aggrieved customer, punishable under municipal law alone, is considerably more serious than the shooting in cold blood by a military guard of a single prisoner of war, which is punishable as a war crime, that is, as an international crime. In short, gravity is not exclusive to international crimes, nor does it render an otherwise municipal crime international. Moreover, the historical reality is that most undisputedly international crimes were rendered international less as a way of condemning the impugned conduct over and above the condemnation implied by its criminalisation and appropriate punishment under municipal law than for the starker reason that it might otherwise have escaped punishment altogether. Now, the assertion, or in some cases the unwitting implication, that particular seriousness is a necessary characteristic of an international crime stems quite understandably for the most part from the fact that the best known historical instances of the commission of such crimes have indeed shocked the conscience of mankind. The popular imagination associates the term international crime with Auschwitz, Halabja, Srebrenica. And crime as deed, that is the second meaning of crime, tends to allied with crime as legal concept. The association is reinforced by the practice of international criminal tribunals from Nuremberg onwards, which, as a function simply of practicability, have tried only the most serious violations of international criminal law. In sum, no international crime is a minor offence, and many instances of the commission of international crimes have been and are appalling. In addition, it does seem to be that, whatever the historical explanation for the designation in each case, the term international crime has come to carry rhetorical connotations of gravity. The point, however, is that particular gravity is not a necessary and therefore not a definitional criterion of the formal legal concept of an international crime. Well, the other definitional misconception is as follows. It is sometimes said that an international crime is a crime triable by an international criminal tribunal. Now, although this is not necessarily untrue, it is misleading insofar as international crimes are not the only crimes that can be tried before an international criminal tribunal, as the statement implies. An international criminal tribunal enjoys whatever subject matter jurisdiction is vested in it by its constituent instrument, and it applies whatever law its constituent instrument directs it to apply. And 
and this is the point, there is nothing to prevent the states or international organisation establishing the tribunal from conferring on it jurisdiction ratione materiae over specified municipal crimes or from specifying certain municipal law as the tribunal's applicable law. The possibility was foreshadowed in principle by Hans Kelsen and it was entertained both by the United Nations Secretary General in his report on the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and by the International Law Commission in Article 33, applicable law, of its draft statute for an international criminal court. Now this possibility has since been realised in Article 5 of the Statute of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, an international criminal tribunal which grants the Special Court jurisdiction over certain crimes under Sierra Leone's Prevention of Cruelty to Children Act 1926 and its Malicious Damage Act 1861. The possibility is most graphically illustrated in Article 2 of the Statute of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, which vests this International Criminal Tribunal with jurisdiction over only certain crimes under Lebanese law. In this light, triability by an international criminal tribunal, while often descriptive of an international crime, is not determinative of it. So we return to the point that the definition posited here is quite simply that an international crime is a crime defined by international law. While similar enough to be considered a single genus, to borrow the language of the natural sciences, the varieties of international crime which we have considered so far are also different enough to be thought of as belonging to distinct species of that genus. Indeed, for certain purposes, these species are more meaningful than the overall genus. There are two criteria according to which these species might be distinguished. The first, the one on which we've concentrated, being whether or not the offence in question gives rise to criminal responsibility under international law. And the second, whether the formal source of the offence is customary international law or whether it is treaty. In the final analysis, both criteria are germane, appropriate and useful. As far as labelling goes, it is suggested that the familiar tag crimes under international law be used to designate and be reserved for the first category of offence, that is for those offences like crimes against humanity which give rise to the criminal responsibility of the perpetrator under international law. As a straightforward matter of usage, the language seems natural. In addition, this is the most common and most authoritative way the term crimes under international law has been used to date. It's how the International Law Commission uses the term in its principles of law recognised in the Charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal and in the judgment of the tribunal, in its draft code of offences against the peace and security of mankind of 1954, and in the commentary to Article 20 of its draft statute for an international criminal court. The same usage crimes under international law, is found in General Assembly Resolution 96-1 and in the subsequent Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, 1948. So that label, I think, hopefully many would agree, is uh, a well-worn one. There is a problem in that there is no obvious name for the 
other species of international crime that I've isolated, those crimes defined by international law, which do not, however, give rise to criminal responsibility under international law itself, but merely ultimately under national law. None of the academic literature in English which adopts this inclusive approach that I have adopted to the term international crime provides one. On the other hand, those scholars who subscribe to the narrower concept of an international crime sometimes refer to this other category by the archaic term international delicts or delicta juris gentium, which is unsatisfactory in that it suggests delictual rather than criminal responsibility. Reference is also made to transnational crimes, but this label is problematic also for several reasons, not the least being that many purely municipal crimes can be committed transnationally, that is, across national frontiers, as can some crimes under international law. And that not all so-called transnational crimes are so committed. Torture, often given the label of a transnational crime, at least torture within the meaning of the Torture Convention, is, I would imagine, never committed across a state border. Now, despite the unavailability of an obvious name and recognising that the choice of label is a relatively arbitrary one, it is suggested that this second category of offence be designated crimes pursuant to international law. Now, why this? Well, there is some slight but mildly persuasive precedent in the primary sources, specifically in the form of Article 20, Paragraph E of the International Law Commission's Draft Statute for an International Criminal Court. Now, it will be recalled that the draft statute did not limit the court's jurisdiction over offences defined by treaty to those giving rise to criminal responsibility under international law, but also included offences merely the subject of obligations of municipal suppression. In an apparent and judicious recognition of this distinction, Article 20E accorded the court jurisdiction over, quote, crimes established under or pursuant to the treaty provisions listed in the annex. That the phrase crimes established under treaty provisions is a reference to criminal responsibility under international law, that is, under the treaty, is clear, both in general and from the commentary's consistent designation of genocide, aggression, war crimes and crimes against humanity as crimes under customary international law and more simply crimes under international law. A contrario, the phrase crimes established pursuant to treaty provisions refers in the ILC's language, to those conventional international crimes to which individual criminal responsibility under international law does not attach. That is, to those crimes defined in those conventions which ultimately result only in criminal responsibility under national law. So, on the one hand, crimes under international law, and on the other hand, crimes pursuant to international law. Both these sorts of crimes, that is, crimes under international law and crimes pursuant to international law, can at least, in theory, have their source in either custom or treaty.
borrowing and extrapolating from the IOC draft statute, the respective subspecies, if you will forgive the term, might then be handily referred to on the one hand as crimes under customary international law and crimes under treaty, and on the other as crimes pursuant to customary international law and crimes pursuant to treaty. Now it will be noted from what I've just said that the treaty can provide for either crimes under international law or crimes pursuant to international law. As such, the common generic term treaty crime does not necessarily denote criminal responsibility under international law, but simply identifies the formal international legal source of the crime in question. Well, there we have it, the definition of an international crime. Now, as I've tried to make clear to you here, this is one view of the definition of an international crime. It is a view shared by others, but nonetheless, it's a view uh, in relation to which there is an opposing school of thought. It is up to you to decide which one you prefer and up to you to decide ultimately which one is the one adopted as what we would hope would be the standard terminology under international criminal law. So please, and perhaps pitching for a vote here, uh, I would like to think that this is the preferred one and the one that becomes the standard terminology, rather than, as the saying has it, a voice crying in the wilderness.